online has changed me, has changed the way I feel about school. I feel like school is now just about passing, you know? It's only about getting, you know, like just passing, being able to pass. It's not about learning new things and trying new things and preparing us for the future. Personally, one of the biggest things that have changed uh, on online learning is the things that I, like, once enjoyed doing. Uh, For me, orchestra was always my favorite class. I would always look forward to orchestra and playing my violin, but since online school started, I've been dreading taking my instrument out of its case and just playing because I have so much performance anxiety of like people in my house hearing me and especially recording myself. I like burst into tears every time I try to record myself Um, because one sad violin isn't an orchestra. I'm probably looking forward to things just being normal and being able to be with friends, be able to hang out again because I I feel like school right now is a lot harder without being with friends and without having that like I guess other support I think that school has honestly just come down to passing or failing and I don't think it's about learning I think it's about getting assignments done and not having any missing assignments so I don't think that is the point of school and I think it's totally changed how I'm looking at school right now Those voices are hard for me to hear. Teaching this year has been difficult as an adult, but I asked my students on the last day of school this winter to anonymously record some of their thoughts on a padlet, and when I listened to them, they broke my heart over and over. Teaching is hard work. Students come to us at a wide variety of skill levels. They learn at different speeds. They each have different needs and preferences. Some have resourced, supportive families, Some are marked by personal or family trauma. Some are wealthy, privileged, and confident. Many others are not. I say these incredibly obvious things to underscore the fact that teaching competently is, on a good day, difficult. Teaching well and generating lasting, meaningful learning outcomes remotely during a pandemic has often felt impossible. Our students feel adrift and lack a sense of community and belonging. Teachers are being forced to reconcile with the fact that their curriculum and lesson plans, drained of the context of the classroom, feel less relevant and less connected to students' lives than ever before. Teachers and students have struggled to move all of their interactions online and then navigate a complex web of learning management systems. The assumptions we've made about what students know and are able to do from a functional standpoint have been proven largely incorrect. We could say the same for some teachers too. And our country's total lack of a social safety net has been exposed in ways that I can't connect to any other experience in my lifetime. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe our country does have a social safety net. Schools. The 50 million children who, in non-pandemic times, pass through the doors of American public schools each day do more than learn in those buildings. They socialize with peers and adults. They learn how to negotiate knowledge and ideas. They are fed, 
counseled, monitored for signs of mental and physical distress, they are, we hope, equipped with the skills necessary to succeed in some abstract real world that exists outside of the regulated, safe school environment. Many parents look forward to the day their children can start school so they can stop paying, or at least pay less, for childcare. What happens when we take all of that away? We're finding out. In a piece published in NBC News in December of this most trying of years, Anne Helen Peterson wrote this. Our brains do their best to keep us going, day after day, week after week, through grave disappointment, trauma, and failure. Right now, they're trying to keep us going just a few months more. And the best way to keep us safe, at least in this moment, is to keep the future as blurry, but still bright, as possible. So as we ease around the corner into 2021, what do we know is taking a look back at what teaching was like in 2020, if for no other reason than to remember that this is what it was like and to try to learn some lessons along the way. When your house is on fire, you don't run outside through the front door and immediately think, I just went through something terrible. Let me take a deep, thoughtful moment to reflect on what I've learned. You just think, my house is on fire. It takes time, and it takes space to process. My school closed on March 13th, opened again in August, and we made it 12 weeks using a face-to-face remote hybrid before we closed down and went fully remote again on November 13th. The challenges we faced throughout have been immense. We had to build a new schedule to accommodate a face-to-face and remote hybrid. That means we created two cohorts of students, A through L and M through Z, to cut class sizes in half, cut face-to-face instructional time in half, and built a new bell schedule. A through L students came to school on Monday in person and attended class online on Tuesday. M through Z students flip-flopped online on Monday and in person on Tuesday. Here's Trip Sergeant, the assistant principal at my school, who in addition to his other duties is in charge of scheduling. So the, the biggest struggle by far has been the master schedule. I mean, that, that's not even close. Um, physically creating something which has never been done in public education before is there, there's no like rule book, playbook, you know, pick your, pick your thought or your structure for how to examine that. It just doesn't exist. So we had to create one and in this scenario, I created one that maybe could have worked most of the time, but as people suddenly realized the coronavirus is real or the impacts change or whatever their fam- family dynamic was that caused them to want to go remote, it significantly changed the paradigm that was set up, which is hard. And it's really hard in that the, the facts of the coronavirus have not really been hidden and what was likely to come has in fact come. It would have been neat and tidy if our district and the profession at large allowed us to prioritize working with students in the classroom and allow for off-campus kids to work asynchronously. That would have still necessitated a massive pedagogical shift for most teachers, but regardless, our district wasn't prepared to do that. They mandated that all students should receive continuous, synchronous instruction each day. So on Monday, you'd teach to your face-to-face kids and teach to your remote kids, who would all sign on to Zoom or Google Meet and participate in classroom life in some way. What that actually looked like depended on which classroom you were in. 
Complicating matters further was the reality that over 30% of my school students chose to learn 100% online. So now imagine this. You have 30 students in your first period class, 10 in the A through L cohort masked and in socially distant rows in the classroom, 10 other students in the M through Z cohort logged into Zoom and visible on your laptop screen, and 10 more students who are fully remote, also logged into Zoom and on your computer. You have 80 minutes to teach them all an engaging lesson about the concept of conflict and literary fiction. Go. A nuance of that reality is that the numbers were rarely that clean. By early November, one of my English 10 classes had only four face-to-face -face students remaining in each face-to-face -face cohort. The pandemic was worsening and parents were choosing to keep their children home. So there were four students in my classroom and 18 on Zoom. As small and unbalanced as my in-person classes were, that was not the case for other teachers. Throughout the fall, we rarely encountered any uniformity within the problems or the solutions related to school planning. Part of that I blame on the constant dialogue over the summer about reopening schools. That wasn't the right conversation to be having. You know, it would have been great if we had recognized in June the likely progression of the pandemic that we yeah. could have put some pieces in place yeah. to be a little bit more prepared. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like a lot of our conversations are not necessarily... The, our conversations as a school were driven by the conversations that were happening at other levels too. But I feel like a lot of the conversations that happened over the summer were like, how can we safely reopen schools? It, it wasn't when really, I think we needed to be like, okay, great. Like this isn't going away miraculously overnight. Like we're going to be in a situation of prolonged remote instruction. How can we make that better? Did you, it sounds like you kind of sensed that coming, but you couldn't really act on it as, as much as you maybe wanted to. Well, uh, yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> as a new scheduler, I wasn't really sure how to approach the problem. So there was a level of lack, there was a lack of knowledge there to potentially address pieces of it. The other parts are, I was not given any directives towards we might need to consider this. And I think as a, as an institution, that being Jeffco Public Schools, not Stanley Lake, we should have had, these are the potential scenarios for the fall, be prepared. And there are things I could have done to have made that a little bit better. Um, but then there are other pieces that don't work well. And I'll share that with this podcast. It's not something I will necessarily put out in other places. But even when we did an alpha breakdown, a through L worked really well for two grade levels. It was a different alpha for the other two. Yeah. So no matter what was picked, there was going to be a different level of issue. And even if it was A through this level and second letter, I mean, it's still, there were still inherent issues. Tripp's talking about the cohort structure itself. If a family with the last name Martinez has two students who both go to our school, one in ninth grade and one in 12th, there's a chance that even though they both should have been rostered into the same M through Z cohort, one would actually be in the A through L, which would mean a scheduling nightmare for that family. Both kids would be on different schedules each day of the week except Friday, which was asynchronous for everyone. Of course, if that did happen, we'd do our best to work with that family and eliminate such a silly red tape conflict. That's part of the work. But it also bears mentioning that every school in our district was made to come up with their own operational schedule. 
Imagine having students in your family spread across two or three different schools, a real thing that happens all the time. Wouldn't it just be easier to choose the remote option for everyone? A further nuance of that reality is the struggle that all teachers shared and continue to share of getting students to take remote learning seriously. The thing that pushed our district over the edge and back into full remote learning wasn't an untenable number of sick students, but rather the broader effects of the pandemic on district logistics. When Colorado shifted into a higher level of risk on our state's COVID dial, our district had to modify its targeted contact tracing and begin quarantining full classes of students when a positive case did emerge within a school. So one student who attends four classes and then tests positive could cause as many as 60 student and four staff quarantines. Expand this out to bus drivers, school support staff, and so on, and a few dozen cases can cripple the district. I'm actually really proud instructionally of the work that I did this year. In my ninth grade classes, my PLC mate and I walked our students through four distinct and meaningful units. And I say this as someone who hates thinking about units of instruction because that sounds too much to me like covering the material. But we were thoughtful about our instruction and our outcomes. We used principles from Kareem Farah's Modern Classrooms project, and we basically flipped our instruction. We organized everything on Google Classroom in clear, logical ways, and we used a tool called Parlay to organize and run meaningful in-class discussions over Zoom. It was great. At least it was great some of the time. Other times it was terrible. In Kotot Mainstreamed English 10, my team teacher and I used a lot of the same methods, blew up everything we'd done before, and tried every day to put our students' needs first. But it's so hard. Everything is different. This is Cole Harding. He teaches math at my school. He's tall and charming and has a commanding voice and everyone I know loves him. Kids who hate school love him. They used to love being in his classroom. Okay, so in the move from online to hybrid, one thing that, that I felt that, that was unfortunate is that I'm not able to play to one of my biggest strengths, which is building relationships um, with kids. I just feel like it's a harder, it's harder to bridge that gap on Zoom. I mean, we, we try our best and you know, we try to do silly warmups and talk about how was Thanksgiving break and have everybody answer in the chat and make sure voices are heard. And, and, and we can do, we can do things to sort of have a, a B minus version of it, but it doesn't feel like I get to build those relationships nearly as well. Um, so that's been, that's been a challenge since we went remote consistency wise. I agree with you that it's, it's easier to just plan a lesson when you know where all the students are, they're just on the screen. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, and going along with building relationships, me to student, it also feels harder to foster a sense of community um, in both settings, hybrid and in online only. Um, I mean, in a math classroom, I can tell you from the years that I subbed and the years that I, that I have taught here, uh, when the four desks face each other and they sit in their little pods of four, some magic happens that just doesn't yeah. happen when they're in rows when they're hybrid and there's only 15 of them, when they're online, it just doesn't happen unless they're facing each other's faces. Yeah. Um, that's been hard. And then I'm trying to think, I wrote down, you're right. I, I literally wrote down a million things. So let me, let me grab <laughs> what's maybe the most like prescient thing now. Um, okay, sure. I'll go, I'll go with this one. How about in an online setting, I got 42 kids in my first period geometry and, wow. and a good portion of them are, are ESL, but, but beyond that, just 42 kids. I estimate that to look over someone's shoulder in a math classroom and know as just the, the kind of the, the gut feeling and then like very easy checkpoints, 
how they're doing with math, it's a five to 10 second process. I just kind of come, I look, I mean, you remember this as your math teacher would have done. They kind of come look, maybe, maybe say something to you, maybe ask you, how did you know that? And then move on. Um, now, if they are going to share their screen or if they're going to hold up their work and get it to focus on their camera and I have, I, I'm old, so I'm looking at it like this. Um, or if they're going to vocalize and just describe it with, with, with words, that's a 20 second to two minute process per kid. Yeah. And so that, that I'll, what levels, it's like the lowest level of formative assessment in a math classroom that I rely on so heavily in the classroom to just be like, how are we doing to take the temperature of the room and for individual students? Just don't have as much of a pulse on that. It's brutal. It's brutal. Cole has 42 kids in his first period class because most of them are online. Many expected and logical restrictions on class sizes have been relaxed because of the way our classes have been rostered. Cole has a first period A through L cohort, which cannot have more than 15 kids in it. He has an M through Z cohort, which also cannot have more than 15, but his remote section can easily push him over the usual 25 or so students you'd expect to find in a high school class brutal. Jessica Post, another teacher at my school, agrees. I think you like summarized one very nicely there and it's just that word like chaos like everything you think you have one plan and then the next moment something changes that has to get thrown out the window we have to adjust for something else. Um, so I consider myself a very flexible person so I just I don't like get stuck in that and I don't get upset with it, but it's very tiring <laughs> and exhausting. Um, I think in, instructionally, I actually felt like pretty well prepared for this. I've been using like Google Classroom and gone to Google Summits and all of that for years. So instructionally, like I'm, I'm not having that learning curve like a lot of my colleagues are of just having to learn how to use like so many different programs. That's a real thing. As an English teacher, I've never felt more saturated by ed tech than I do today. There's Google Classroom and Actively Learn and Commonlit and Vocabulary.com and Parlay and Edpuzzle and blah, 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 blah. Sometimes online teaching seems like it's more about the tools than the students. So to be totally honest, it's refreshing to hear that other teachers and when I say that, I mean really, really skilled professionals are having the same issues that I am. <sighs> Those are the challenges. Right? Oh, and then, and then the one that pains me the most, we don't have to, we don't have to get into it, but, but the one that pains me the most, bro, is in my room by about week three, um, I, I walk around for a warm-up and the warm-up's on the board and they've done it. And I'm like, all right, uh, you two, go ahead and go up there with the whiteboard markers. And they're like, me? I, I, and I'm like, yeah, come on, you could do it. Just, I, I'll just sit in the back, pretend I don't even exist. And, and from week three on, they just teach each other with, with certain, certain concepts that some of them know well that are new for others with certain warmups. Like they just teach each other and they call each other Mrs. So-and-so and they laugh. And it is painful that even though they have the ability to share their screen, they have the ability to talk each other through problems. Even my seniors who are, have excellent executive functioning and are good a b workers they just don't want to do it they don't they don't have the same i can make them do it but it's not the same as sort of that like eventually they kind of arrive at this place like oh it's really cool to teach each other and that's just like that hasn't happened all semester and just 
just accounting for this, I think we had a lot of blind spots is what I want to say. Like, That's Jess talking about the things we often think our students know, but that they really don't. And starting to recognize our own blind spots has been a challenge. Like I assumed that kids were a lot tech savvier than they were, or I assumed a certain level of familiarity with those programs and stuff that we were doing or at least like problem solving like they'll spend hours watching youtube videos of how to do like a game and watch each other get through levels and all of that but then when it comes to like turning something in on google classroom it's like oh my god i don't know what to do and i'm completely helpless and i think just that like and also like getting I know we've talked about this several times, but getting students to participate in class and like breakout rooms seem to be this silo where kids just go and turn off their cameras and totally disengage. So again, with that blind spot, like I feel like we had this assumption that kids knew how to start a conversation or talk about academic topics and have, you know, use academic vocabulary to like get something done or negotiate like roles and stuff because we can see them do that in person but I guess we just didn't realize how different it was to take that online we assumed that that skill would like transfer really easily and it just didn't um and you know I keep reminding myself like group work we have the same struggles in class I mean I assign something and I walk away and by the time I circle back to that group they're talking about homecoming or something else completely unrelated to the thing so I that happens in person too but the difference is you can just hear all of it simultaneously and not have to like pop into these different rooms and like there's an awkwardness there too like they can see where I'm moving and using proximity to just kind of check in conversations but you can't do that virtually I feel that a lot of the a lot of the things that we assume about what students need uh, to be working on or the things that are challenging for them or the things like that I'm actually there as a support for that's totally changed this is Willow Mason she's our school psychologist she talks to our students like they're adults She's calm and reassuring. I wish we had five of her. Willow and I are both on our school's equity team. It's a new thing this year where twice a month, a handful of staff members get together and try to name and understand the main equity issues at play in our school. We haven't really gotten to the part of the work where we dismantle those things, but we're all concerned about what the pandemic continues to do to our students' social and emotional well-being. The things, like, I'll give you an example, social anxiety. So we have a ton of students where, you know, they have goals that I'm working on with them about, you know, if your social anxiety is impacting you to the extent that you can't actually be physically in a classroom with other people um, for the duration of the class period, um, because it's so anxiety provoking for you, then we need a strategy to help you to navigate that. Well, that's totally different now because some students um, are actually doing way better with that because they're not having to go into a classroom full of, you know, (laughs) full of people. And um, it's actually more comfortable for them to be behind a screen and to do it through Zoom. 
then you get the complete opposite, which is you've got students who all of a sudden are feeling super anxious about having to attend class meetings in this totally different way. Um, and have, you know, anxiety around the technology, anxiety that's social, but for different reasons, because it's a different way of socializing. Um, and then you've got this whole other thing with like hybrid learning, where sometimes you've got people who have um, pretty significant communication needs and, um, you know, needs for a lot of help with their social skill development. And you've got now this added barrier of everyone's got a mask covering, you know, the lower half of their face. Like, how do you how do you help students with that? Meanwhile, we're still supposed to be kind of adhering to these original goals that we had set for them. It's like, well, that's just not relevant. So I've definitely needed to be a lot more flexible about that and creative about how I support each individual student. Yeah. Are you worried? I know there's there's a lot of talk uh, now of like learning loss and things like that. Like this whole year and generation of students is going to experience just or no, or not get as much learning and not make the expected gains or whatever. And, and there's one school of thought that's like, well, yes and no, because like we set those benchmarks for kids. So like if we're concerned that kids aren't going to be ready to take like a standardized test, that's an artificial benchmark that we have created. But are you at all concerned about um students like lost time life experiences socializing and things like that like the social emotional aspects of school a hundred percent yeah i would say well i mean obviously in my role <clears throat> this is always going to be the more kind of present thing on my mind or prevalent thing on my mind um i'm always um the first to promote social emotional learning and the best way to have that happen is by having social experiences in school um, I mean, I think we have this perception of school as being like, this is where students learn math. This is where students learn ELA. It's where they learn science. You know, if they're lucky, then they really discover some extracurricular stuff that they love. But there's often this kind of like, I think we kind of forget sometimes as a society that school is actually where we're kind of helping people become adult humans, you know, and that that is so many more things beyond academics. And right now, I think one of the main challenges that we're seeing um, just in the field of education as a whole is um, students don't have that sense of belonging that they used to have in a school. The opportunities to create that sense of belonging have been like dramatically minimized and almost are non-existent for some students. Um, and I think that you create those by creating social opportunities for them. And because of the, the crunch we're in, as far as like trying to help make sure students are accessing their ac the academic um, side of things, um, the other stuff has been pushed completely to the side. And I think that that's having a knock-on effect for the academics. I think that if you, if you lose that sense of belonging and that sense of school as being a place that actually is like helping to train me how to be an, independ an independent adult and a fully functioning member of society, like then the academics like don't seem relevant. It's so easy for the motivation to just follow. If you're anything like me, or I should say the March 2020 version of me, then you might be thinking, big deal, your classes are online. So what? You log on, do your work, and you get on with it. But the reality for students right now could be more different. Envision this. You're a teenager. You've spent your entire recollectable life getting up each morning and going to a highly regulated environment where you're led through structured and unstructured social interactions. You're told where to go, when to go there, and how to behave. That may sound draconian, but that's kind of how school works. 
Now you wake up and log onto your computer for somewhere in the neighborhood of four consecutive 80-minute video conferences. You're expected to participate, then work independently on homework, papers, and projects. Maybe you have siblings to take care of. Maybe your internet access is poor. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you're just sad that you can't see your friends. For too many students, that's exactly what it's like. That was a lot of sad stuff, so now I'm going to tell you something good about this school year. Back in March, we got a puppy. We drove from Denver down to the part of Colorado that's basically Oklahoma to a farm in a town called Pritchett and bought a golden retriever. We named him Dave. Right now he's outside meeting some neighbor kids through the fence, and before that I took him for a walk, and before that we played tug-of-war with a demonic-looking plush toy named Petunia. Dave's brought an immense amount of joy into my life every day this year. In November and December, I started online classes with a Dave mood board with nine pictures of him on various adventures. I had my students start class by telling me how they were feeling that day based on their chosen Dave. We also got to use the Zoom chat a lot doing that. I frequently had students bring their own dogs into the Zoom feed on their own to meet Dave. It was delightful. Life gave us a few different types of lemons this past spring. So we got a dog and named him Dave. Okay, back to the school talk. As a teacher I follow on Twitter pointed out back in April, it turns out there's a reason we have kids in classrooms. There are so many logistical and behavioral obstacles to overcome when teaching online. To be clear, it can work. It can even be effective, sometimes magical, but it's hard and it's exposing the flaws in bad curricula. There are certain content pieces, skills, or lessons in math class that we all say as a math department or a content team are engaging, but what we really mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, is that when the kids are all in the building, we just turn up the jazz meter and we can just do it. We can just infuse the room with some energy and it's an important skill for that they have, or maybe it's not, um, but but we can, we can muscle them through the Yes, I'm going to learn this by by our energy, just just sort of pushing that out at them. And then they, they eventually are like, okay, yeah, I'll latch on. Can't do that over Zoom. So then the boring lessons, let me just tell you, dude, it is apparent when you've arrived at a thing that is not necessary or extra boring because the kids are just like, it's, it's just like, they're just like chewing gum, looking at the screen. Uh, that's it. And I'm just like, well, we should we should probably consider if that needs to be part of the curriculum anymore. So, so yeah. curriculum is one thing that feels like, like it's picked it apart and been like this. Yeah, this works. Do you really need this? The other thing that I will say is, I don't know if, if I don't know how other teachers uh, do things compared to me or compared to math teachers, but like, I have always truly like written or this, these last two years, even before COVID typed out like my lesson plan and, and put like chunks of time next to things that, that are, that are, it's gonna, how my lesson structured, how I think it ought to go. And then it gets adjusted. Right. I've had teachers tell me like, since COVID, this is the first time they've written down what they're going to do in 10, 15 years. And on the one hand, if you're a 20 year vet and you're teaching a class you've taught 10 times, I know, you know, what each lesson feels like. But I also think it's a really, it's actually a really healthy thing to like time out your lesson so that you sort of know where you're at and where the kids need to be at. Um, that like, I mean, how much were people winging it, I guess. 
We're also learning not to overwhelm or to try not to overwhelm our students with tools while also struggling with feeling constantly overwhelmed ourselves by what feels very much like a simultaneously visible and invisible mess of content. And I think like the last thing I just wanted to say is like, again, like getting in touch with kids and when they miss something, like how do they really, like if they miss that breakout room and that instruction, like how do they make all that up and I just like forget to start the Zoom recording session and and I think like there's this I like to call it the labyrinth of links like every single communication like families and staff and everybody is just completely inundated with digital communications and links to go here and links to go there and I mean there's so many emails that I'm just like that, that's too much. I'm not even gonna open any of that. I know you're trying, but like, I'm not even gonna get down this rabbit hole. Yeah, I, something you said earlier about like the learning curve of digital teaching, remote teaching, that sort of thing is real. And I think a, a problem, I don't wanna say it's like an opposite problem of that, but because like I'm fairly experienced with those platforms. My problem was actually getting like too stuck into too many platforms where I'm like, we can use Google Classroom and then we can go to actively learn and then we can come back here and we can go to this website and then we can do some vocabulary.com and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it just turns into this like, in theory, a buffet of options, but really it's just more, it's more like a food fight of options, um, which is, and then like not good for students. Um, and so I've been very conscious after the experience in the springtime to try to not do that. But there are times where I totally still set myself up for that. Like I've been running office hours through uh, the same way we did um, parent teacher conferences where we created like a big appointment sheet uh, or an, like a block of appointments for several days and, and then post that appointment link for students, which then generates a, a personalized Google Meet URL and it puts it on their calendar and all of that is great except i run class through zoom so like for the past four weeks trying to be like all right so classes on zoom office hours are on google meet in the back of my mind i'm like i know there are going to be kids that don't like that conflate the two so generally like once a day i'll be sitting in a google meet and then i'll get an email that's like so and so entered your zoom room and i'm like ah i'm doing <laughs> this to you i'm trying to be efficient and i'm still doing this to you which is very frustrating I think that leads to like, you just never feel like you're doing a good job. Like you're always kind of setting someone up for failure. And I, I'm sure that is the case again in person, but we've just never had to like be so reflective or see it like pop up in an email. Like, hey, this kid clearly, like there was a miscommunication there. Yeah. Like in person, you don't really see that interaction. But every time I get that, I'm like, well, I'm in a different meeting. I can't like let the kid in or whatever right now. And it just feels like you're always setting someone up for, for failure. It's all too easy to start feeling guilty during all of this. I know I breathed a huge sigh of relief when our district moved back online because I would be safer and my wife would be safer and my entire family would be safer. But I also thought to myself, what about those kids who literally need to be at school to get something done? What about them? This has been a really conflicting issue for me. I mean, I, 
On one hand, like personally, I enjoy being able to work from home and I don't feel like I'm rushing out of the house and forgetting things and like I can make my breakfast and refill my coffee and go to the bathroom when I want and all of those things for me like personally are great. I feel like there's less chaos in this situation because we're not having to deal with like I started referring to them as Dr. Death, like coming down the hallway in this like entourage of people to pull kids and teachers out of the classroom and, you know, have to worry about, am I, was I exposed to the virus and now I'm at school? And I don't know, like all of that anxiety and stuff is, is taken away. But I also know that like kids did enjoy being in school. I mean, even though it wasn't the same, like a lot of kids need that, like school is in a separate space. Um, it's not at home. I don't have these other distractions. I could just have a conversation with a kid and see when they were struggling and not doing something. And, and so I think, you know, for a lot of kids, it's, it is really hard um, to do remote learning. And even as a teacher, there are days when I don't feel like doing anything and I'm at home and there's other stuff that I could be taking care of. And so I, I get that. I hear this and I just think she's right. And it's a shame that our country's response to this disease has been so incomprehensibly bad that we probably won't be able to regularly be back at school until fall 2021. To put it plainly, Students need to be at school because it gives them a sense of community and belonging. But whether or not school happens on campus or on a Chromebook, the pandemic has exposed many deeper problems. Our curricula are outdated and in some cases irrelevant. Teachers had trouble navigating the newest instructional tools before COVID, let alone now when they've been forced to adopt unfamiliar technologies and uncomfortable practices just to get by. Teachers and students are overworked because of old-fashioned paradigms about covering content and daily interactions are hijacked by incorrect teacher assumptions about skill and access to resources. And we continue to be poorly equipped to deal with even a small number of mental health issues. All of these things are hard. In the next episode, I'm going to focus less on what was hard and more on what's next. Where do we go from here, next year and beyond? Do we even know yet? Thanks for listening. Hang in there. Shout out to Cole Harding, Jessica Post, Trip Sargent, and Willow Mason, who voluntarily sat for all of these interviews during their spare time during December, during the year 2020. Thanks to you all.